0: If you ask me what people have been the most influential in my life, especially when it comes to faith, I put my parents at the top of the list, Now I have a pretty long list, but near the top of that list would also be the man in this next picture, C.S. Lewis. Now, that may be a strange thing to say about someone who I've never met. In fact, he died four years before I was ever born. Never met him, never met anyone who did know him personally, never, never been where he lived there in England. So how, why would I say I feel this, this closeness, even this, this relationship, this debt to someone that I have never met? Well, it's because I've read his words. His books have shaped and inspired me like few other things have, besides the Bible. I mean, mere Christianity, uh, screw tape letters, *The Great Divorce*, *The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe*, *The Last Battle*—those words make me feel like I know Him, like He was like He was talking to me. And in this series that we're in right now, We've I've said, you know, we find ourselves in God's world. And we've talked about why that is. We've talked about why, just logically, it's a logical assumption that there is a God and he's the reason that we're here. He's why we have life. He's why we have a moral sense. And we're in God's world. And we have a relationship with God, whether we acknowledge it or not. Whether we like it or not, we are in an inescapable relationship with God. And we've also said last week, it's essential that for any of our other relationships to be healthy, we have to get our relationship with God right. So I'm convinced that we see God's fingerprints all over this created world and in ourselves because we are made in God's image. But you can't be in a relationship very well with someone that you don't know So if the most important relationship for us is our relationship with God, we need to get to know him. And to understand the the fullness of what God wants in that relationship with us, we have to read his words. He's talking to us. These are the inspired words of God this is God's words talking to us. And so today, we're gonna to take a, a very broad, big picture scan of what God says in the word of God about the relationship he wants to have with us. But to get to that, here's the first thing. And, and again, this is, we're talking big picture here. Right? I cannot. Begin to get into everything I want to share with you from that book. But here's what you need to know. In this God who wants to have a relationship with you, one of the first things that's obvious about his heart, his heart for you, is this. God loves you despite your sin. And That's true no matter what you've done. That's true no matter what you have done and that's been true from the very beginning last week we went to the beginning the first three chapters of genesis and last week we read genesis 3 and that story of the fall how adam and eve defied god's one restriction ate of the forbidden fruit and they decided despite all the ways he would showed them his love they still decided that he couldn't be trusted and so they decided they'd be better to be independent of him they decided it'd be better just to be their own gods is basically what we learned from their decision but even after that betrayal the worst betrayal you could possibly imagine do you see what God was doing right after that God was seeking them Adam where are you God is in Eden saying where are you he is seeking them and after he explains to them The terrible consequences of the decision that they made with that first sin, after he explains, here is all the damage that you have caused, here's the very next thing that God chooses to do. Genesis 3.21, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. He helped them cover their shame. He was helping them come to terms with this new broken world they would now live in where they were shamed around each other, they were shamed around him. But in that sinful state, some things could not be the same. His love for them did not change. His love for them never changed. But some things about their relationship, their closeness, their intimacy with him, just it could not be the same because of that sin. And so this is what had to happen, one of the consequences of their decision. Genesis 3, 23 and 24, therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man at the east, and at the east end of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And so their perfect home and their perfect relationship with God was lost because they had chosen sin. But from Genesis 3 on, the entire rest of this book from This page on the whole rest of the story is God showing his love. It's God seeking us. It's God finding us a way to still be with him in a relationship. So here's what God is working on. For the whole rest of the biblical narrative, God wants to be with you. That's what he wants. Despite your sin, whatever you have done, despite all of that, God wants to be with you and he wants you to be with him and God wants that relationship. God created us to love us and he wants us to thrive and we will only do that if we are near him and aligned with his will, obedient to him. So throughout this whole biblical narrative, God is initiating that relationship. It's it's God's idea to still connect with us. It's God's desire, it's God's heart for that. And so the rest of the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, traces the story, the family tree of Abraham, the the father of the nation of Israel. And God cultivates a special relationship with them as his covenant people. And he describes that relationship he wants to have with them like a, a marriage. So in the book of Exodus, He says, I I want to have this with you. And so he he saves them from slavery in Egypt. And the whole book of Exodus is is God showing how much he wants to be with them. And it's like a courtship. And so from the time he saves them from slavery and brings them out of Egypt, he's proving to them how he he can protect them, how he's going to provide for them, how he loves them, how he wants to be with them. And so... They follow him all the way to Mount Sinai, and at Mount Sinai, he kind of makes a proposal. I want to be your God, I want you to be my people. He asks them, he makes an offer, he doesn't impose this on them, he asks them. And they say, yes, that that is how we want to live, in relationship with you as your people. And so then he gives them the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments outline what their relationship is gonna be like, but think thing to remember about the Ten Commandments is these are not ten rules. These are not rules, these are relationship promises about how we're gonna love God and love each other. It's like the vows we make at our wedding. We don't, we don't tell each other, okay, here's the rules. If you wanna be with me, some things are gonna change. Here's how it's gonna go down. When we make those, when we make those promises, We're outlining our relationship, and we're gonna say these are the things that we're gonna do because of how much we love you, how much we want to be with you. And then what happens after that, once they they make that commitment to each other, God says now, just like in a a wedding, we make those vows and then we, we come together to live together, now God wants to live with them, to dwell among them. And he does that literally in a tent, because they're all living in tents. And so this is what he says I want he wants them to do. Exodus 25, 8. Have the people of Israel build me a holy sanctuary so I can live among them. That sanctuary is called the tabernacle. The tabernacle is just a tent. Because his people were living like nomads in the desert, God also would live in a tent, just like they did. And he describes in Exodus, here's the layout of the Israelite camp, here's where all the different tribes are going to be in orientation to the compass, and in the very middle of the camp, the very center, is the tabernacle. God wants to be dwelling with them in the very middle of their community. So Leviticus 26, 11, I will live among you, and I will not despise you, I'll walk among you, I'll be your God, and you will be my people. And so God had that physical home with his people, first in a tent in the tabernacle, and then once they later settled down in the promised land and they had permanent homes, he also had the temple still dwelling among them. And then, even better, he comes as Jesus. And in Jesus, we have God actually living among us in the most relatable form possible, as a fellow human. God expresses his desire to be among us in the most personable way possible as by being one of us, suffering everything that we suffer. He wants to be that close to you. That's how he wants to live with us. And he desires that one day We will all live with him for eternity. This is what Jesus says in John 14. There's more than enough room in my Father's home. If this were not so, what I've told you, I'm going to prepare a place for you. When everything is ready, I'll come and get you so you can always be with me where I am. And in the final book of the Bible, you go down to Revelation, John gives us a glimpse of what's gonna happen at the end. Here it is. And what happens is this. Because what happens is he said, in the end, God, heaven, come down and be with his people. And he describes it like a marriage. The bride of Christ. We, The church is the bride of Christ. And this is what he says is going to happen. John 21, 3. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. That was God's desire for us throughout the Bible. But throughout this story, people constantly disappoint. It's us. We are the problem in this relationship. So we lost Eden because of our sin, and again and again after that throughout the whole story, it's obvious we are a sinful people with a sinful nature, and we constantly are wrecking this relationship. And none of us can claim that we're good enough to be with God. None of us can claim we we earn our way to God Adam and Eve showed us how much damage our sin causes, and we can never pay for all that damage. We can never do enough good. We can never argue that we deserve to be with a holy God based upon our holiness, our goodness. So what God ultimately decides he must do is he must provide a way back to him. And our problem throughout the whole story has been our sin. And so for us to ever dwell with him the way he wants, for us to ever get back to what we had with him in Eden, we somehow have to come up with a solution for our sin, but it's a debt that we've done, we've done damage we can never pay for, we can never make right, and so God decides he'll do what we cannot do. To get away way back to him, he takes on our sin. Now, I don't have time this morning to explain how that whole plan works, the, the belief and the repentance and the baptism and salvation, we're, Again, we're talking at 30,000 foot level today But I do wanted to share with you just a few verses that talk about the assurance, the confidence that we can have that through Christ, we can indeed be forgiven. We can indeed have that relationship, that acceptance from God. Because remember, this was God's idea. We didn't come up with, okay, here's here's how we're gonna save ourselves, so God, this is what we want you to do. This is all God's idea. The God who seeks us, the God who loves us despite our sins. This was his idea. But this is what he gives us. This is what the faithful God says you can be assured of if you have Christ. So Hebrews 9, verse 26. But he, Jesus, has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined, destined, destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he'll appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Then Paul says in Colossians 2, you were dead. You were dead. You were were disconnected from God. You were so separated from God. Your your future was nothing but death because of your sins and because of your sinful nature. You, You were not cut away from that. Then God made you alive with Christ for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away. By nailing it to the cross. And Peter says, Acts 3 19, now repent of your sins and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away. That forgiveness is the work of Christ. It was God's idea, it was Christ's work. Our part of that is faith and obedience. And I'd be happy to sit down with you at a time that's convenient for you and explain to you all the details. If you don't have that forgiveness, If you want to know how that works, I'd be happy to sit down with you and and explain to you everything that that I'm not getting into today. But today I just wanted to know it was possible because the main point I want to stress today is this. Jesus is the way, the only way. There are not many paths to God and salvation the God, of the Bible insists that you believe that, that, that statement, this God insists. You have to believe that with all of your heart. And I just wanted to pause and say that because there's, there's several surveys coming out that indicate some Christians, especially younger ones are, are reluctant to agree with that statement. It, it makes them uncomfortable because they worry how that sounds to non-believers. They worry what that tone would be to people who aren't in here. I mean, is that, it's kind of arrogant, it's exclusive, it's judgmental to people who don't believe that. What about, what about my friends who are Muslims or Buddhists? I mean, won't that sound offensive? I understand your concern. I'm glad you have that concern. I'm glad you have that heart. I'm glad you care that much about those friends. So I get, I get the problem. I get what you're saying. But we cannot let those concerns dilute our Christianity down to what sociologists have called moralistic, therapeutic deism. This is a, this is a worldview. This is a belief system. And basically what this says is, you know, we, the main thing, the important thing is that just you're, you're good people. That's, that's the main thing, that's, that's the moral aspect. And the point of life is to be happy and feel good about yourself. That's the therapeutic aspect. And there is a God, that's, that's a deism. This view doesn't say there's no God, but he's just, I mean, he doesn't put a lot of demands on you and his main, his main concern is that you're good. So as long as you're good people, as long as you're nice to everybody else, you're good. You feel good about yourself, you're good. And that philosophy, that makes you sound like a kind person. That makes you sound like a good person who won't offend anybody. But think how offensive that statement is to Jesus. If people are mostly good and and just just being good is enough, if you can be good enough, why did Jesus die on the cross to forgive sins? If that terrible sacrifice was not necessary, If if there was some other way, if just being good was really all it took, How unbelievably cruel God must be to have allowed Jesus to still go through everything he suffered on the cross when it didn't matter, when it wasn't necessary. How cruel would a God have to be to allow Jesus to go through that when he didn't have to? Because people are basically good, and as long as you're good, that's all that matters. But that's not what you keep hearing in this book. In this book, the apostles are constantly saying things like this, Acts four twelve, Salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. But were they lying? You know, those guys that, that wrote things like that, they were being killed for saying things like that. The Jews and the Romans were both killing them. It would have been so easy for the first Christians to just get along, to just not say anything that much controversial about Jesus. They could have done that and got along with everybody. And yet, they were being imprisoned and beaten and watching their children killed because they refused to say there is some other way. Those words, they're being killed for those words. Now, why would you lie about something that you knew didn't really matter? Why would you let your children be thrown to lions for a lie that didn't really matter? They kept insisting on saying those words, because that's what they heard Jesus say. Places like this, John 14, 6, Jesus answered, I am the way, and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If there there are other ways to heaven, if all it takes is being a good person, then Jesus is a sad, delusional liar and this whole Bible just falls apart. The Jesus of the Bible is the most loving character I've ever encountered. But he insisted that he's the only way for you or for me to live with God, to find eternal life. Only by believing in him and obeying these words. There are no other way. There's no other belief system. There's no amount of good deeds. And yes, that is exclusive. That is an exclusive statement. And yes, that does exclude a lot of people, including some really nice ones. But truth, by definition, is exclusive. Truth excludes everything that is not true. When people talk about, well, you know, that's your truth, or that's, this, this, that's their truth, somebody's not telling the truth because truth is exclusive. We can't have two truths. Jesus... In all of the Gospels, those four books, they're his biographies, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In all four Gospels, Jesus never once apologizes for anything he says. He never once apologizes for anything that he commanded people to do. Never once. Why is that? You know why? Because it was truth. It was life-giving, soul-saving, straight from heaven, necessary truth. For everyone, you don't have to apologize for speaking truth, and you should never dilute it. So Jesus didn't. The so church just so we're clear: to have a biblical worldview means you believe what the Bible says when it says Jesus speaks the truth. When he was on trial before Pilate, listen to what truth. Do this: what Jesus said about truth. John eighteen thirty-seven. In fact, this is Jesus talking. The reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth everyone on the side of truth listens to me jesus says you have to pick a side truth means you have to pick a side and on his side he says is the truth so anybody or any philosophy that doesn't acknowledge jesus as savior and the only way to salvation is not telling the truth you can't be saved if you don't know the truth no matter how sincerely you believe a lie, your desire cannot make it true. There's a popular sticker that illustrates, I think, this issue very well. I'll throw up on the screen here next. You ever seen this? You ever seen on a bumper sticker or someone's laptop? Coexist. I mean, graphically, from a graphic designer viewpoint, this is this is ingenious. I mean, this is so clever. It's it's very striking. And it cleverly uses Muslim and and Jewish and Buddhist and Christian, even some secular and pagan symbols, all to spell this word. And this word is a very appealing word. But here's my question. The person who has this on their their car or on their laptop, what are they saying? If you asked them, what does that mean to you, what would they say? What's, What's the message that they're trying to send with that? I see two ways to interpret this. One, coexist means that all people, religious or not, should be able to respect each other and and, and coexist in the same community. That's one way to interpret that. Well, if that's what you're saying, if that's what coexist means, I completely agree. I'm with you all the way. I can support that 100%. I want to be a good neighbor to people of all faiths or no faith. And I can do that while still disagreeing with their beliefs, while still hoping to share Christ with them someday. As Rick Warren says, we don't convert enemies to Christ, only friends. Remember, Jesus was accused of being a friend of sinners. So I want to be the best friend anyone could possibly have. If that's what coexist means, I can coexist with you. You and I can be good neighbors. I'll be a good friend for you if that's what coexist means. But there is a price I will not pay to make that happen. And that price is what I think most folks who display that bumper sticker are demanding. Because the other possible message of coexist is that people, regardless of their beliefs, should be willing to do whatever it takes to avoid offending or being divisive. We should be able to just get past our differences because those differences really don't matter. If that is what coexist means, I completely disagree. I mean, first of all, to anyone who says all religions are the same, I would ask, okay, so does that include the Aztec religions that that cut the hearts out of prisoners to appease the sun god? Would that include the Ammonites who burned their toddlers alive as sacrifices for their god, Moloch? Would that include the, the Taliban who prohibit girls from being educated who, who behead their opponents because of their religion are those basically all good people whose religions are all about loving others don't tell me that all religions are the same all religions are not the same they don't all teach the same truths and they don't all worship the same god isaiah forty five twenty one. god says there is no god apart from me a righteous god and a savior there is none but me That one verse, that one verse puts us at odds with millions of others who believe in multiple gods, such as the the Hindu and the Shinto religions. But the Christian belief in the Trinity, a God who is one yet three, well that puts us at odds with all Muslims and all Jews. So no, we don't all worship the same God. The God of the Bible does not mix with anyone else. He claims to be the only savior for us and the whole world. There's not his truth and your truth and their truth. There is the truth, God's truth. So see, there are irreconcilable differences between religions. There's some things that we we will not agree on. So Christians can coexist with other belief systems, but we cannot compromise. Not when it comes to biblical truths about morality or salvation or eternity or the nature of God. Being a Christian is a commitment that requires you to be all in. Jesus told us, pick up your cross daily and follow him. That's the language of death. Cross is the language of death. Dying to ourselves and our desire for acceptance or popularity. Of course, that should not be a surprise because our Savior's love for us required an almost unfathomable commitment to be humbled down from the throne room of heaven down to human form to suffer every temptation just as we do to endure the greatest injustice ever seen. The only perfect man to ever live was unjustly killed in the most grueling way man has ever devised. But that was the depth of his love for us. That was his commitment to save us from our sins so we could have a relationship with him. So he could dwell with us and we could dwell with him. So we can't forget that. We can't forget that word, relationship. This is all about our relationship with our God. And that relationship means life. So when we're tempted to compromise biblical teachings so that we can appear nice or kind or tolerant or open-minded, to do that is actually to be unfaithful. We're being unfaithful in our relationship to the God who's been so faithful to us. This is like a marriage. This is like a marriage. The church is the bride of Christ. That's how serious we are to take our devotion to Christ. So to endorse or simulate non-Christian beliefs is not kindness or open-mindedness, but adultery. Because we are in a relationship. And that's how it's always been for God's people. That's how we're always supposed to see our relationship with him. When the Israelites worshipped idols, God didn't just call it idolatry, he called it adultery. They were violating their covenant commitment to him just as much as if they had been cheating on their husband or their wife. So he told them, Exodus 34, 14, you must worship no other gods, for the Lord whose very name is Jealous is a God who is jealous about his relationship with you. He's jealous because he loves you. He's jealous because he wants you. His jealousy wants us to be with him. And without him, We are destined for depravity and destruction. You must take your relationship with God and your obedience to him as seriously as you take your commitment to your husband or your wife. Because when we don't, James tells us what happens when we don't. You adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again, if you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Do you think that the scriptures have no meaning? Do you think that this doesn't really matter? Do you think that some other belief is just as good as this one? Does it have no meaning? They say that God is passionate, that the spirit he has placed within us should be faithful to him. Listen, this is the truth. This is reality. This is who God is. This is God loving you. This is God loving everyone that you love. There's no other way. There is no other truth. And we can say that and still love others. We can say that to them in a loving way. But we cannot compromise this. If you really love somebody, share this with them. That is the most loving thing you can ever do. Thank you for being here. Let's stand and sing.